Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WWE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore joins me after making this announcement earlier today. Atlanta finds itself at a critical juncture. Again, I've heard your voices and time has come for me to take the next step. That is why I am here today to officially announce my candidacy for the mayor of the city of Atlanta. Council President Felicia Moore and now mayoral candidate joins me in just a moment. But first, this nearly a dozen Metro Atlanta school superintendents are calling on Governor Brian Kemp to make teachers eligible for the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, currently, Georgia is vaccinating health care workers, first responders and people over the age of 65 years. However, in a letter, local superintendents say teachers should be added to that 1A plus group and that their health and safety is critical to opening up schools and for them to remain open. Now, Governor Kemp has said Georgia does not have enough vaccines to add nearly 400,000 educators and staff to the priority vaccination list. But as soon as supplies increase, he says teachers will be included. Meanwhile, according to the state's new vaccine dashboard at the time of this broadcast, about 791,000 have been vaccinated so far in Georgia. This comes as the number of newly confirmed cases in the state continues to rise. So here are your local numbers. In total, 731,826 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. In addition, 49,247 have been hospitalized, and of those, 8,290 considered ICU admissions. And this goes back to last year. 12,135 Georgians have died due to the virus. And as always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Coming up next, Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore and why she's running for mayor. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. By the way, tonight's co-host with Brian, me. So tune in at 8. Current Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore officially enters the mayoral race that will take place later this year. Take a listen. I am ready, willing and able to chart the course with you, navigate the city's challenges with you, and manifest a vision for the city of Atlanta reflective of all segments of our population. While there may be some worthy opponents, this race is not against flesh and blood. We'll we'll find out what it's all about. That virtual press conference taking place earlier today. Joining me now on the program is Atlanta City Council President and now mayoral candidate Felicia Moore. Welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rose. Let's begin here. You said this race is not against flesh and blood. You've been a city council member now for, I'm not trying to age you, but you, two, what, two decades now? I was a council member for 20 years and yeah. council president for going on four. Why? Why the time? Why this time now to take this run? Well, I have to take the next step to be able to serve the citizens. They have appealed to me. I'm very active and engaged with people, and they want things done. And in order for me to truly get it done, I have to be in that position of leadership that executes the day-to-day operations of the city. When you said they have appealed to you, what have you been hearing? Well, of course, right now, the issue of the day is crime. 
uh, and wanting attention paid to all of the activities that have been taking place across the city. But there are also other needs, just basic city service needs, making sure our city service levels are uh, correct, addressing issues of the uh, unsheltered in our city, de dealing with the issues of housing affordability. There are a myriad of issues of the city that need some attention and to really give it to the attention that it needs other than setting the policy, I have to be in the position to be able to execute it. I want to focus on crime for a moment because and this, there will be a conversation with your fellow council member Antonio Brown uh, following this conversation. You know, you and I both know we've seen crime spike in this city before. Uh, for some folks, was this new to them that Atlanta's crime rate could could rise? Well, I don't think it's new, but I just think that it has exploded and it's one issue after another. And we are really experiencing a large increase. And so that gets people's attention right away. If your mayoral campaign is all about a change in leadership, are you saying that there has been something that has dissolved under current Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms? There are things that I believe can be done. And I have talked to not only the citizens, but I've talked to police officers in many different ranks. Uh, I've talked to the citizens and business owners. I've talked to a lot of people and I, what I've come up with, and I will be rolling this out as the campaign goes along. Mm -hmm. First, some very quick actionable items that we can take, but also the medium and long-term things that we have to do as a city that truly impact crime. Atlanta is the number one city for income inequality. That all plays into crime. I want us to understand that all of the issues of our city are connected. <laughs> They're not disconnected. They're all connected. And we have to do more than just lock people up, but we also have to do some of the things that we need to do to help lift up our citizens. Everything that's tied together, and you mentioned income inequality, and we certainly know about that. You mentioned housing affordability. You mentioned about that. Obviously, the city's ongoing challenges with trying to find resources and help those who are unsheltered. That's been taking place for a while. You could take that back even before Kasim Reed. Um, there were some challenges, but there were some improvements as well. So, again, can you pinpoint, though, specifically something under Mayor Bottoms' administration that's not happening? Can you give a, a, a concrete example of something that's not happening in terms of her leadership that you pledge that you can do better or improve? Well, again, like I said, and you played it in your piece, this is not against flesh and blood. This is not against anything or anyone. I'm sure the mayor is doing the best that she can. What I am offering to people is that there are other people who have other ideas and a passion and vision to get those things done. So in all of those spaces, as I go through this campaign, I will offer to the citizens of the city my vision, as well as those things that I believe that need to be done. Some of them may be to execute what is already out there mm -hmm. and others may be more innovative, but nonetheless, being in the position of mayor is different from being in the position of council member or president where you can ask for something to be done, advocate for something to be done, make policy, I'll be in the position to get it done because those people who execute it for the citizens will be working under me. Have you advocated or asked for something to be done and it wasn't either under the current mayor or the previous administration? Can you give an example? Well, there are a lot of things that I've asked for. So you talked about the unsheltered population. Mm -hmm. It is only going to increase. I've been sounding an alarm about that for the last four years. This is before we got into the COVID situation and we've got to step up our efforts there. And in particularly those chronically unsheltered that do not want to go to a facility, I believe that we have to find somewhere where they can keep shuffling them out from under the overpasses because they're just going to come right back. Mm -hmm. And so I did offer a plan, an idea of finding a location where we can have wraparound services, showers, uh, housing, so that they can be in a location and not have to be moved and displaced and only for them to reappear. So that's an idea that I've put out there that I have yet to see any action on. 
there was and there has been criticism, particularly under Mayor Bottoms administration and with the former administration under Kasim Reed, that the mayor and the city council just were always disconnected, that there was always some type of divisiveness that was taking place. You have been on both. If you're running for mayor, but will you pledge to the city council that if elected, you will be different because they've been offered that before and it's the same criticism? Well, it won't be an offer, and it didn't even have to be a promise. It's just a part of who I am. I love the legislative side of city government, and I have suffered from or suffered through some of those contentious times. And so my relationship with council will be one that we will be collectively involved. They will be pleased to know that I will be asking for them to be a part of how we develop policy in the city and how we execute it in the city. And so I have some things I'll be unveiling in store that I'm sure council members uh, have not seen ever happen with any other mayor. Also under, not just under Mayor Bottoms, not just under Mayor Reed and, and Mayor Franklin, but it's always been the perception that perhaps sometimes the business community, they'll send me emails, so whatever. Sometimes the business community, developers have too much Involvement in legislation, is that something you're willing to tackle as well when you're running for mayor? Will you address that as a candidate? If, if you feel it's a problem. I don't know if you feel well, it's a problem. Well, I think that the, the, the problem, if you want to put it that way, or the challenge is, is that most of the mayors uh, and others have dealt with those developers, came up with all of these plans and then said, here it is. And then everyone scrambles to be for it, against it, or to amend it. What I would pledge, and the city of Atlanta is known for is the development and economic development. We don't want to stop that. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is make sure that there is an inclusive process where everybody is at the table or at least knows what's going on. I don't think you should I should, as a council member or a citizen, pick up the newspaper to find out about something. I want to be engaged and involved in developing the plans. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that transparency, ethics, and accountability was also at the core for why you decided to to jump into this race. Uh, in your assessment, has that are citizens are they still just sort of fed up or are they, are they not seeing those three key metrics from Atlanta city government and city council? I'll just put it on, on the administration, but on city council as well. Well, I will say that I believe that it can be better. And that is why I'm in the race in terms of the transparency. We have open checkbook, which is, was inspired by efforts of me as a council member to get our city finances online. I want to take that make sure that it's up to date and functional and add to it uh, more information. So city citizens have access to information. Ethics, you know, I authored the initial legislation for the compliance officer and the IG. I wanna build a relationship with the IG so that we can build on that. Uh, and accountability, I want us to tell people very clearly what we're gonna do and communicate. That is the main thing. People want to know what's going on and make sure that they hold us accountable. And if we can't make that metrics when we say we're gonna do something, then we need to be able to come back to the citizens, own up to it and tell them how we're gonna make it better. I'm not sure this is lost on you or not. I, I imagine you probably know this. Five city council presidents have run for mayor uh, over the last, what, 25 years. None have been elected. That's not to say that that's something that you should be focused on, but does that, you are aware of that. Are you concerned about that? Do you feel that the, perhaps with that position as city council president, maybe voters sometimes connect that? That could be a bad thing or a good thing to the current administration. And depending on how you vote, that could be a factor. And this is a question that comes up quite often, and there's always a first. And I intend to be the first. You still have duties as the Atlanta City Council president. How will you balance continuing to do that and run for mayor? I will do my duties as council president. I certainly will stay engaged. And it only makes sense for me to continue to stay engaged because I want to stay at the forefront of what the issues are before the city. So that will not uh, change. You anticipate uh, some more announcements uh, jumping into the race from potential candidates who are also coming out of city council? 
I have uh, just heard that some people are interested and they haven't made, they told me, a final decisions. And there may be other candidates out there. And this is the democratic process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people say, well, you know, the mayor has uh, can run another term. Why now? Why interrupt the term? But that's not how it's done. Every four years, whether you're a council member, council president or mayor, you come up for a re-election, and that is an opportunity for others to offer to the city what they can do. And so this is a time when, when someone can run, and uh, that is why I'm in the race. How much of your experience being on council and as city president in terms of your engagement with the community and the different neighborhoods in this city? You and I both know concerns in Buckhead may be different for concerns in Peoplestown or, or, or the Pittsburgh community. How much well, of- let me let me say this. I represented District 9 for 20 years. Mm-hmm. The only district in this city that was truly represented from Buckhead to Bankhead, which is now called Donnelly Hollowell Parkway and beyond. And I represented both both neighborhoods or areas in my district. And you said that they have different issues. I would suggest having been experiencing that in 20 years, that the issues are not different. There you don't think there are certain, you don't think there are certain there issues in Buckhead and, and, and Pittsburgh or, or any no. other community or even old fourth ward. No. I, well, one of them is, is crime. So when people are talking about crime, it's the same thing that they're, they're complaining about on both sides. When you're talking about infrastructure, when you're talking about city service delivery. So there's more in common than there are different. However, in some areas are challenged. And so when I represented, I really had to focus on uh, code enforcement, litter abatement, other issues in crime that may not be in, in the Buckhead part. But what I'm saying to you, there's more commonality in the city in terms of what citizens want than there are differences. That may be true, but you and I both know, Council President Moore, that also for some communities, and even before you were on council, they residents will tell you, neighborhood planning units will tell you, there is still in there, some for some of them, there's been a dis, dis, neglect, maybe not intentionally, but the, whether it's benefits from a stadium being built or or complex, what have you. But th- there has been a, a, a disconnect in terms of resources that some of these communities need. That's a given. I, you're no, not, and you're, I don't disagree. Okay. And having represented both Buckhead and Bankhead, I've had to address those neglect issues. I'm just saying overall core issues, there's a lot of commonality. But in some areas, there are certainly those things. And that is a part of what I want to do is make sure that we're putting the resources to stabilizing those communities that have been otherwise neglected. And finally, as we wrap up, you and I also know that when it comes to campaigns, sometimes they can get pretty, well, for lack of better words, nasty. I don't know if you anticipate that, but do you have the thread of you as Felicia Moore? How much of that will be guiding your campaign and the strategy and the folks that you have around you? Well, this campaign is about the citizens and helping citizens, and that's what I'm going to portray. But I am one that does not start fights with anyone, but I'm not one that's going to run from either. So if there's no fight started, there will be no fight engaged. I used to say that when I was in third grade. It's just been hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been hours <laughs> since your announcement. Can you imagine me as a little third grader? Uh, it's just been hours since your announcement. What's the feedback been so far? What are you, I know folks texting you. Of course, it's been positive because my supporters uh, were on the call with me and they are excited. And I'm certainly hoping that that support base grows as we go through the campaign. Current Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore, now officially a candidate for the Atlanta mayoral race taking place later this year. Council President Moore, thank you always for taking the time and answering the questions. I really appreciate it. You're welcome anytime. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF.
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As you just heard on the program, current Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore will run for mayor. And President Moore mentioned public safety as one of the reasons for her mayoral challenge. Now, here's something to think about. Last year in Atlanta, 157 homicides. It was the most in decades, and crime overall had increased. Now, depending on whom you ask, the reason, and one reason Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom said, could have been caused by those visiting Atlanta because the bars and nightclubs were open. Now, here's Mayor Bottoms back in November. What we are seeing, again, because Atlanta is open for business and other cities don't have nightclubs and bars open, we are seeing a number of people traveling from out of state uh, to come to Atlanta to go to the nightclubs and to the bars because we're we're open as if we're not in the midst of a pandemic. Well, recently, the Atlanta City Council passed a resolution to conduct a feasibility study regarding a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. Now, how might this add in decreasing crime in the city? Well, earlier in the week, I asked Councilmember Antonio Brown, who introduced the measure and represents Atlanta District 3, that very question and more. Councilmember Brown, good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Rose, for having me on today. Before we dig deeper into why you all want this feasibility study, have you had a chance to review last year's overall crime statistics? I have. And it's, I mean, from what history has shown us, it's the worst in the last two decades. And I mean, it it doesn't seem as though it's getting better. We're actually moving into 2021 with, I mean, homicides happening all over the city. And it's an extremely unfortunate circumstance right now. Yeah, I had a chance to look at the APD's crime stats and I went through all the different zones and homicides were drastically up. Now we played a clip from a November press conference with Mayor Bottoms and that was the reason she gave then. The mayor contends a spike in crime could be outsiders coming to Atlanta. Your thoughts on that, Councilman Brown? I'm not saying that that is not a... um, contributing factor necessarily, but but I, I believe that that's the surface level reasoning behind what's occurring. I think when you really dive into the root of the issue and as, in, as a council member that represents uh, some of the poorest communities in Atlanta that have been poor for decades in this city, I think what you're seeing is generational poverty that has gone unaddressed for decades that has now spilled over into other communities. Because the reality is, yeah, you may not have heard about it in Buckhead, but it's been happening on the west side of Atlanta for years. And it's been happening at the same rates it's currently happening now. I just think now that it's spilled over into other communities, it's getting a lot more attention than maybe it was before. Have you, or either the council as a whole, had conversations with Mayor Bottoms about this? I know there's been some back and forth through the media, but have you all sat down as a full body, a government body to talk about this? It seems like you all have a strategy and then the mayor has her strategy. Y'all just seem a little disconnected. Rose, Rose, as you're aware, at my swearing in, I made an ask to Mayor Bottoms and to President Felicia Moore that in order for us to move this city forward, we would need to work together. Um, especially when addressing our low-income communities. And one of the most disheartening things in which I've witnessed on council is the divide between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And all all it's done is deter the progress that we could make if we've worked in a collaborative environment. There is no reason why a council member reaches out to the mayor of this city or to any member of the administration or vice versa. The mayor reaches out to a council member or the administration reaches out to the council member. 
and there is not a collaborative effort to get the needed work done in this city. What's the problem? I honestly, I believe it's ego and pride. I, I believe that that, granted, none of us are perfect. We, we, all, we all possess some of that ego and pride. And I think what it comes down to is, you know, there's constantly a discussion. I know on council, I've heard on, on several occasions and from the administration about who takes credit for what. And I've said from the very start of my term, it shouldn't matter who takes credit. It's about the work getting done, you know? Um, and I, I, I honestly have struggled with that on council. I mean, I've reached out to Mayor Bottoms on numerous occasions and voiced my concern about the lack of collaboration on council and the fact that we need to do a better job of working together. And I remember at one point, she acknowledged and said that she agreed and she would work to do a better job at, at really um, bringing council together. So, you know, I'm not really sure where this has broken down, where this communication has broken down, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be in an environment in which you feel as though you have to you have to guard everything you do and say because someone's going to attempt to use it against you or to undermine you in an attempt to achieve their own political agenda. Are you talking about fellow council members or are you talking about Mayor Bottoms or in other folks? I'm just speaking in general. Okay. You know, I'm not I'm not I mean, I'm not saying it's council members. I'm not saying it's Mayor Bottoms. I'm just speaking about the atmosphere, the environment in which I know I'm, I can only speak for myself that I am constantly operating within. And it, it's it's discouraging. Like there is no reason that this department, public safety and wellness legislation did, did not get, you know, the feedback and support of the administration. Especially when you've had when you have eleven council members that are signed on to this bill, that means unanimous, and it it passed through council three committees and council unanimously. So fifteen council members felt as though this legislation was not only necessary, but was the direction in which the city should be moving in. And I just find it incredibly hard to understand. Why wasn't the administration there and in support of this? The voice you hear is Atlanta District 3 City Council Member Antonio Brown, and we're talking about a feasibility study that would outline creating a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. And, of course, there are some other initiatives tied to that. Let's dig into that, but also just want to get some feedback in terms of have you been able to speak with Interim Chief Rodney Bryan at all? So I have not been able to speak with Rodney Bryant. And, you know, I've spoken with a ton of men and women in the uh, police and fire departments. I've spoken with other chiefs. I've spoken with Sheriff Labatt. I've spoken with the Atlanta Police Foundation. And everybody has been in complete support of this legislation. I mean, the Atlanta Police Foundation said that a lot of these recommendations, not only do they support, but they've been advocating for for the last two years. And that spoke volumes to me. Let's talk about the vision behind creating this. When you're talking about a public safety and wellness, let's go over what specifically you all want to see from this feasibility study in terms of the recommendations and how this could work. Sure. So I think there's some major components to the legislation that stand out, right? Mm -hmm. The goal and purpose of this legislation, after speaking with police officers, fire, fire members, folks that are experts in public safety, what was determined was that you had a lot of police officers out here performing tasks in which they were not trained to do. Mm -hmm. And they were becoming more of a social worker than a trained police officer to enforce the law. And in doing so, it created this overwhelming burden, as well as, I believe, a low morale in this department because, because they were not being supported in the way that they should have been supported. Honestly, Rose, 
I remember when I was writing this legislation, the purpose of me writing it was because I was looking at how do we bring two sides of a, of a spectrum, the defund the police folks, the fund the police folks, and how do we meet everyone in the middle and, and, and find a place in which we can all agree on. Mm -hmm. So I was very intentional when compiling this legislation from hearing from everyone. I, I did not limit no one from making recommendations or providing feedback on how to strengthen this legislation. So part of what the police had said was, hey, we're, doing, we're out here doing community-oriented functions that we're not trained to do. Why are we doing this? So we looked at establishing in one of the recommendations a new division of non-emergency response. Mm -hmm. With that division would come a non-emergency response number. And we've had conversations about this before because often when someone calls 911 thinking it's an emergency, an officer, I mean, obviously they don't know what they're walking into. So you want a separate non-emergency number that folks can call. So the goal is, is that this new division would be a complete separate division from our emergency members. So from our police and fire members, they would call this non-emergency response number that would address non-emergency issues like the unsheltered population, those that are struggling with mental health, you know, issues, non-emergency issues that don't rise to egregious crimes at home or at school, issues that we see playing out every day in our communities. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we were intentional about, Rose, in these recommendations is establishing an office of communications that would fall under this Department of Public Safety and Wellness to coordinate efforts of 911 as well as this new non-emergency response number because 911 center was being inundated with non-emergency calls which was creating an influx in calls and increasing the hold time. Mm -hmm. So this would help alleviate that. Let's talk about structure and how this would fit within Atlanta city government. So this would be a separate department, obviously, but it would fall under, I guess, would it be under law enforcement? What department would it fall under? So this Department of Public Safety and Wellness, it would be its own department. There would be a commissioner that would report directly into the mayor. And I don't know if you recall, but Mayor Bottoms previously had a commissioner of public safety mm -hmm. um, that was funded through an outside organization and after the funding exhausted, the position was never reinstated. But after speaking with Sheriff Labatt and others that reported into this commissioner of public safety, they thought it was a brilliant mm -hmm. pathway. They thought it was a really great opportunity to bring emergency personnel together to address citywide issues so everyone was on the same page and in sync. Can this work with Mayor Bottoms, one Atlanta, one APD action plan? And have you reviewed that? So I have reviewed the action plan and I've also spoken with Dave from the Atlanta Police Foundation. He's in full support of this legislation and he says it's in direct in alignment with the One Atlanta, One APD plan. And the reality is, is they've been pushing for a commissioner for the longest because structurally it makes sense to have a chief of police reporting up to a commissioner, having the chief of fire and rescue reporting up to a commissioner, and then having whoever is the chief of this newly formed division of non-emergency response reporting up to the commissioner really creates a structure, an infrastructure that really provides the highest level of efficiency and impact to ensure that we have the most adequate folks on the streets supporting our residents and also supporting our most vulnerable population. Now, let me ask you this. Here comes the money question. Will your feasibility study look at a funding structure for this as well? Absolutely. So one of the requirements is, is which is why this legislation came before the Finance Exec Committee, was to evaluate that. But Rose, let me tell you, we looked at creative ways without creating implications within the budget. Like we have 350 APD vacancies right now. Taking a percentage of those vacancies and moving them over to this new newly formed division of non-emergency response. In addition to that, we also recognize that there is a potential closure of the Atlanta City Detention Center. Mm -hmm. There is a chief 
of ACDC. There are personnel within ACDC that are already doing community oriented functions. So why wouldn't we look at when repurposing these positions, retraining and seeing who could move and transition to these newly formed divisions? I'm glad you brought up the detention center. What should happen with that building? So, Rose, as you know, I sat on the task force. Me and Councilmember Westmoreland were the two council members that were a part of the task force. Now, I have to be honest, I didn't attend every one of the meetings, but from what I grasped, you know, I'm not against a center for equity. (laughs) What, What I need clarity on, I asked at our public safety work session for the Atlanta City Detention Center is, I need to understand the ramifications of individuals that come in contact with our jail, what those offenses are, and if we close the jail, would these individuals be forced to matriculate over to Fulton County and face a potential permanent record that could follow them for the rest of their lives? That's a concern for me. I asked the question and I really didn't get a clear answer on that. The other piece of this is, is that, you know, I'm really close to this, to the human rights organizations, civil rights organizations here in the city. And a lot of them believe that we're moving backwards by not closing the jail. And again, Rose, what I, I find so often in this city is a divide. You have people on one side of the spectrum and people on the other side, some that want the jail closed, some believe by closing the jail, it's going to increase crime in the city. But I, and and I've said this to Sheriff Labatt, and he's agreed, there is a place we can all meet in the middle to address how we move forward with the Atlanta City Detention Center. We have to do a better job of bringing the city together. Welcome to politics, Mr. Brown. You've been on council now for two years. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) As we wrap up, what is the timeline for you all to get this feasibility study back where you can review it? And then in between all of that, how optimistic are you? You all can sit down with the mayor and the police chief and collectively work together because at the end of the day, Nobody wants more lives lost, and especially not seven-year-old girls. I agree. At the, you said it best, Rose. At the end of the day, I don't care what side of the, t- uh, of the city you live on. Everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants to feel like their kids can walk to school and not have to worry about being shot and killed. That's the facts. This study is slated to be completed in 120 days. We're going to be holding two work sessions in between that time period to meet with the public, to get their perspective, to weigh in on how we continue to shape establishing this Department of Public Safety and Wellness. And I'm going to tell you, I have faith that the mayor is going to really listen to these recommendations. She's willing to to see what the study says. And I appreciate that because that's all I, I ask for. And I believe, again, it's something to be said that 10 other council members co-sponsored this legislation and believed that this was the right direction in which we should be moving in. Atlanta District 3 City Council Member Antonio Brown. We've been talking about new legislation he's introduced which aims to establish a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. It received a unanimous vote to move forward with the feasibility study. Councilmember Brown, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. And, and Rose, if I could just say one more thing that I think is incredibly important because I've gotten quite a bit of pushback from certain individuals on the spectrum we've been speaking about. People said, yeah, but this legislation is not going to address the immediate issues of crime. And it's not, that's not what it was designed to do. You know, that is something that the executive branch needs to focus on and address within this city. But as a legislator, my responsibility was to create near-term solutions that we can work through that would help address the structural issues within our departments of public safety and really create a system that works for everyone. All right. Councilmember Brown, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Keep us posted and we'll stay following this. Thank you so much, Rose. It's such a pleasure.
at Closer Look continues. Now we will continue with our next segment in just a moment, but want to bring this breaking news to you as we are hearing from the AJC and the Associated Press. A liquid nitrogen leak at a Georgia poultry plant has reportedly killed six people with multiple others taken to the hospital. This is from the Associated Press. Among those injured are at least four firefighters who responded to the leak at the Prime Pack Foods in Gainesville. Stay tuned to WABE News later during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burris. We'll have more. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A week ago, Grady Health System CEO announced the hospital was, quote, full. In a letter, CEO Dr. John Harper wrote the following, quote, If admissions continue to climb, I worry we will face what hospitals in other states grapple with, tough choices on providing care, close quote. He also noted that while the distribution of COVID-19 vaccine is promising, the state will likely see more COVID-19 hospitalizations in the meantime. Of course, all of this puts a strain on our state's hospitals, and as a result, our healthcare workers, all of them, which means a shortage of healthcare professionals. But this was something presented last year. And joining me now to talk more about how his company is responding to this, Shane Jackson, president of Jackson Healthcare, a healthcare staffing agency based here in Georgia. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Rose. So great to be with you again. Let's begin here because at the time of this conversation, we're looking at 25 million plus confirmed cases, and now the nation projecting to reach a half million deaths in just a few weeks. Your thoughts on that? Well, it's we are definitely in the period that we unfortunately uh, kind of all saw uh, coming. Um, hoped wouldn't be the case, but has has certainly been the case uh, as we thought through the winter, particularly coming out of the holidays, just the environment was such that with this virus, we we really thought it was gonna to get to where it is. And we're there, as we've heard, this is the, the, the dark period of this. And, and we're hoping is the, is the worst of it. Um, but we're feeling it, as you, as you said from uh, Dr. Halpert at Grady, uh, that's just a, a, one example and a very typical example of what we're hearing and seeing with uh, a lot of our, most of our hospital uh, partners around the country. When we spoke in, la- I believe it was last time in April, and, and I asked you about meeting the demand for healthcare workers, and you talked about, well, if we're able to not have, as you put it, too many, quote, New Yorks. Well, the nation has reached, quote, a lot of New Yorks now. We have the highest risk places, which include Arizona, South Carolina, Georgia, Rhode Island, and New York. Um, with these numbers, with what you all do, have you seen, have you been able to meet the demands for staffing within the healthcare industry as it relates to the, the, the pandemic? Well, you have a good memory. And uh, that's exactly what I was saying last spring is the difference between now and where we were last spring and, and really through most of last year, the summer and fall, was that we had these hot spots, if you will, but they were sporadic. And so we had other areas of the country that had lower levels of cases. And so we were able to move healthcare workers around the country to the places where they were most needed. Let me that add- really changed in November. Really? And, uh, yeah, it, it's what we saw in November through, um, through most of the country was an increase in, in cases and subsequently an increase in hospitalizations. Let me and, ask you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, and, and so and so it's just a very different situation today. We don't have areas of the country that have low case volume that can spare, say, uh, nursing. Um, it's just not the case. Now, there is, our industry does exist with, uh, and, and no one knows the exact number, but, you know, 150 or so thousand healthcare workers that this is what they do. And they, they just move around the country kind of all the time anyway, uh, seasonally based on where needs are and that sort of thing. And so we do have still the ability to leverage some of our nurses and, and doctors, mm-hmm. therapists and others that kind of work in, in this industry and work in this way, but it's, it's, it's limited. And right now, unfortunately it's insufficient to meet the need. Well, that was my next question. I was 
concerned about what positions are most in demand? Are we talking about also support positions or also, you know, I guess what one would consider, you know, whether someone who works in a ICU unit or, or what have you, what's mostly in demand here? The, the primary crunch is in nursing. Nursing. Specifically and especially with critical care nurses who can work with very, very sick patients. But uh, because there are so many patients that are coming, presenting critically, even what we call med surge nurses, these are the, the, the nurses that work with pretty much any patient that's been admitted to the hospital. Uh, that's where we're really seeing it the most, still to a degree with uh, respiratory therapists and others that are you know, working with patients that have been ventilated, although that's, that's not quite uh, where it was last year. And then on the physician side, uh, intensivist, uh, critical care physician, pulmonologist, um, doctors that are working with COVID patients, that's where we're really seeing it. But in general, nursing tours in the biggest crowd. The voice you hear is Shane Jackson, president of Jackson Healthcare, a healthcare staffing company based here in Georgia. Shane, let me ask you this. Have you had folks who've left the field primarily because it's just too much to handle or concerns about their own safety? We have, and it's something that's contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, understandably, in many situations, if you have, a, you know, say, a nurse who is, is later in her career uh, or in a situation where in a highly vulnerable uh, uh, environment, uh, uh, then, then you can understand that decision. Mm-hmm. But when you have medical providers pulling themselves out of the workforce, uh, it's tough. I, I will say, in addition to that, what we're really seeing is a lot of burnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors, nurses who have been going at this pace now for months, and it is, it's stressful, it's hard, it, it creates limits on how they can spend time with their other family and friends and all that sort of thing. And just psychologically, emotionally, physically, it's exhausting. And so that is certainly creating challenges. I'll tell you, it was, it was a challenge over the holidays for people who just finally wanted to take a few days off to spend with their family, which is great. You can't blame them for that, but guess what? The patients are still there. Mm-hmm. And so it's certainly creating a challenge right now. And it's, I will say it's also a concern looking forward to the day that we're all looking forward to when, uh, when, when the COVID numbers decrease and, and that sort of thing, what, what's going to happen to specifically our nursing workforce and, and how many are going to continue to work versus choose to, to leave nursing when this is over. Shane, do you know if any of the folks you all have supplied in terms of staffing, if anyone, do you have numbers in terms of those that might have contracted the virus or sadly any deaths? Uh, I do have those numbers. I don't know the number off the top of my head mm-hmm. of how many have contracted it. It's, uh, somewhere give or take 150 or so but it's it's not exactly mm-hmm. uh, i do know we've had one death one death mm-hmm. what is the future for an industry like yours with health healthcare staffing are you concerned that with this pandemic it will definitely change not only folks who want to enter this this industry this field but also in support staff too as well what concerns do you have well i'm first of all i'm optimistic about our industry in general uh, and what we do. And I'm also optimistic about the future of caregiving professions. The the flip side to all we've talked about of what these brave individuals are going through emotionally and physically is that people largely enter into this kind of a role because of their care for others. And they're wanting to serve and take care of others when they're in their most vulnerable state of being very sick. Um, and it's, it's you know, great to see our nursing schools are still full and our applicants to come into medical school and all that is, is still happening. And so I don't, I don't think this is going to change the desire for people to come in. If anything, mm-hmm. I think it's probably put healthcare and medical care on the radar for a lot of people who may not have thought about it before. I mean, you know, I think about, I have, I have teenage kids and, and, what they're exposed to and thinking about right now around human frailty and disease was not on my radar as a teenager, I can tell you. And so hoping that that it may even uh, attract a lot of people who are aware of this and want to go 
study infectious disease and, and, and be the one that finds the vaccine uh, that's needed next and all those sorts of things. Mm. Well, we thank you for what you all are doing. Shane Jackson is president of Jackson Healthcare, a healthcare staffing company based here in Georgia. Shane, thank you for taking the time and coming back. We're going to check back with you throughout as we all continue with this pandemic. Thank you so much, Shane. Great. Thanks, Rose. That's it for today's show. Closer Look is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Now remember, on tonight's 8 o'clock programming hour, it'll be me as a guest host, the Brian from WNYC. So check that out. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.